Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the Waiting List Podcast, guys. And today we have a fellow watch lover from Germany. I think, I think arguably the first collector from Germany called Marcus Seams, who is also a neuroscientist by day, but he's an avid watch enthusiast and watch blogger at night. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Thank you for having me. Okay. Very enthusiastic. Thank you for making this <laughs> for me. <laughs> right. And uh, for all our listeners who have been wondering where Jack has been, I just want to tell everybody she's been busy with her preparations for the GRE. So she's taking some time out. She will return to the podcast, I don't know, when it's all done. <laughs> I decided to get Marcus onto the show because most of the time, much of what we discuss between, like, let's say, Lang Lang and Jack and I has always been quite anecdotal and very opinionated um, with very little evidence, mm. I have to say. It's, it's always like, I think, I think, I think. And, you know, I'm as guilty as anybody, you know, for that. And the thing with Marcus is through the nature of his work, he comes at watches through a more of a research-based approach and an evidence-based approach, I should say. So would you say that's true, Marcus? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, this, this empirical type of, of research is um, something that is in the watch world happening as well, but typically on a qualitative um, basis. So people looking into references and looking at single watches and describing details of those, but um, the, the more holistic picture, the, the quantitative picture basically is uh, what I'm interested in and what, what I always found is, is a bit missing in, in this entire landscape and no one really has, has looked into that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to ask, do you think, right, that that is a trait of your culture? Because, you know, like... Stereotypically, I know it sounds really bad, right? But I do want to put it out there as a serious question. Like, you're German. Germans are, are like generally, you know, very, I'm generalizing, I know, but very, you know, efficient. You know, do they do they come at things at this? The culturally, do they come at this in in this kind of approach? Does it is this way interest them? You know, are you finding a lot of your readers are actually German based, or what are you finding? Um... So for, for the German person, yeah, I mean, I mean I've, I've heard this before, that uh, Germans are very um, looking into optimizing everything and, and these, these type of, uh, of let's, let's call it a stereotype, yes. Um, not, not a bad one, actually. Um, yeah, so I am guilty of that, but I don't think that this is necessarily very typical German because still it's it's the first that, that, that I, I'm, I'm doing this and... Um, I, I think for me, this, this comes more from my profession than from my uh, nationality or from my upbringing. Um, it's, it's definitely more based in, in, in the science that I'm reading every day and the type of, of literature that, that I'm reading. So it's, it's scientific journals that, that I read every day and, and some watch outlets on, on the sides, if you want. Mm. And uh, for transparency's sake, why is your like watch ig seems watches well i kind of know why it is because your market seems right but <laughs> why is your website actually not seems watches but gold Ammer? like it's a totally different name yeah 
Yeah, so I'm I'm actually using um, the the handle and the website of a of a, of a friend of mine. So um, from the um, Gold Amers uh, basically. So they are they they have their own uh, Instagram account and their own website. They are um, vintage watch dealers, and they simply happen to be from the same area as I am. We we've met through Instagram and through watches. Um, at some point, I realized that one of the, the accounts that I'm following and one of the, the coolest photography of accounts that I followed, I, I, I found, um, is actually situated like 500 meters from where I live. And um, so we got to talk and, and we, we, I, I also got to, to buy a few watches from, uh, from them. And uh, then at some point, we were simply um, arguing about, okay, so let's do some, some content. And for me, this always was more like, I, I don't want to be in like videos or something. For me, writing is, is a bit more natural. And um, so, yeah, so, so we decided to basically start this and I've been using this, this platform um, that, that they have to basically spread the word about uh, quantitative vintage watch content. And uh, yeah, this has been working out quite, quite nicely so far. Okay. So where, just a little bit of background where are you from in germany and like how did you get into watches yeah so i'm from uh, from rostock it's called so it's from the um northeast of the um of the country um situated directly at the baltic sea and typically in a rather uh, rural area so there's there's not much going on around and also there's no watch culture um if if you 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 basically would have to go to Berlin or to Hamburg to get any any sort of um, of watch watches to look at at all. So there's there's not much uh, even even happening here. So yeah, so this is also one one reason how we how we bonded because yeah, so it's it's really hard to find someone to talk watches to when you are from from this type of area. So how far away is let's say Berlin and Hamburg from where you are? No, what's the population about, of Rostock? No, so Rostock is, is about 200,000 inhabitants and Berlin and Hamburg are each uh, two hours. Hamburg, uh, two hours to the west and uh, Berlin, two hours to the south. Right. Um, just listening to your answers and how you answer, you, you sound very confident when you give figures. So like inhabitants, 200,000 and everything's <laughs> around figures. And I'm like the complete opposite. So I'm very bad with numbers, right? But if you have to describe um, the people that live close to you, how would you describe like the taste in watches? Like, would you would that be something that you observe and try and put words to it, or are you more like counting? Like, I've seen how many Rolexes today. Kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, that, that would be an easy number to count because typically yeah. that's that's zero, <laughs> uh, actually. <laughs> no, but. Um, yeah, I mean the the that's definitely a bit me. I'm 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 a numbers guy. I just mm. simply it comes natural to me. This is also why why I chose my job, I guess, in in, in the first place, and uh, why I do what I do because it's it's it it really is is kind of me. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So you know, you said something about like how you met somebody who was 500 meters away from you that um, <laughs> was into watches, right? Like um, there was a point in time you know, when Instagram where um, I was meeting people via their Instagram handle, you know, that was like, it was very intense. And, you know, I think even, well, Long Long's actually her name, right? So 
there's no there's no like oh you know you're long because obviously that's a name but the people like called i don't know like the wrong wrist or, or whatever you know or and then you'd be like oh my god you know like like shanghai watch gang yeah so they'd be like oh you're shanghai watch gang you know oh, i'm watch biao or i'm biaoist and, and or like i'm horologist and you'd be like oh my god i've been talking to you have you had that have you actually had any of that so like like meeting uh, one 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 of my my horological idols or something like that or well i wouldn't put myself in idol territory yet but like have you met anybody <laughs> that uh you know that you knew like who from instagram right and that you looked up to i mean like come on man it, to be a watch celebrity you only need like 5000 followers <laughs> probably yes yeah <laughs> yeah uh no i mean I, i i had contact with quite a quite a lot of cool people also for example from from the industry so people that that are working with the brands and and things like that and working in the heritage departments this is always kind of cool to to get like their their feedback on on some stuff that that i did and also sometimes the the marketing departments of of brands um who are interested and just you know tell tell you the story how how they see that how they see the history of of their brand and of particular watches and um then you can can uh Yeah, bond bond over that. This is this is pretty pretty cool. Yeah, but I I don't recall a particular moment or a particular person here. Yeah, this is the part you're supposed to say me, by the way. Oh yes, <laughs> I mean, yeah. oh <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I met you from the waiting list podcast. <laughs> I mean, there, there there was a time when I when I reached out to you to to tell you about. Yeah, the come on, read the I script. Did, right? Read the script. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> stick to it. Yeah. No, no. I mean, this this is the these type of situations, right? I mean, you 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 have this idea about okay, so you've listened to the podcast here, for example, and and you think okay, maybe this this person ha might have an interest in what you're doing, and, and you're just describing that, and and uh, yeah, I, I mean, gladly with with social media, we we have the chance to have this type of of encounter and this type of conversation mm -hmm. um, quite often. Actually, this this is I think the the cool thing and the the positive and the start of uh, of social media i was gonna ask right with with such are you actually from rostock or do you actually just did you go there to work there um no interesting part is i actually work in hamburg and um, i originally come from from rostock and um, studied in in bremen and in, in the south of, of germany so i traveled through germany during my life quite quite a lot And um, then at some point came back, and now I'm. Well, I'm. I'm basically okay. Now you completely yeah. dropped. That. <laughs> It's okay. Just get used to yeah. it. Just, it always happens. Really... Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, I feel worse for the for the guests because I'm like yeah okay it happened again. But sometimes the guest is like oh my god I need to repeat the thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. No. Um, no, it's actually, find actually, the time I'm, to do it actually. Like yeah. you, you said you're a neuroscientist during the day, right? Yeah. So at night when you come home, then you're like, let me start creating an Excel sheet and make yeah. crafts. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Okay. To to relax from the yeah. from the stressful neuroscience, I start making yeah. graphs. Oh, it's and so stressful. Let me open Excel. <laughs> uh, when when has Excel ever been like something relaxing? Does anybody actually get relaxation from an Excel He spreadsheet? Oh, I never do. Like it stresses me out. 
like C1, D3, like, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the actual work, I'm not, I'm not doing in, in, in Excel. That, this is the good oh. thing. So I, I actually just use it to, to set up the, the database and then I do another, other software. Yeah. Cool. The reason why I asked about, like, did you go there for work? And by the way, you said Hamburg was like two hours away. So did you commute yeah. two hours to work? That's ridiculous. Um, but the reason, no, I, like, I actually don't. I'm, I'm, I'm in home office most of the time. Okay. And if I have to go to Hamburg, I usually block it to to like three, four days at a time. And then I stay there at, at some place. Um, no. Wow. Okay. So the reason why I asked is because I just wanted to know, where did you get your exposure to watches? You don't see people wearing them. You don't see these fancy yeah. watches. Why is there even like a vintage like watch mm. store there? Like yeah. the population 200,000. That's a very small initial pool to sell to. Um, yeah, and and I think I'm I'm not sure how many watches of those are actually sold locally. I, th I think it started already from the very get go as as an online shop, and and because you have things like Instagram, which is a a cheap marketplace for someone to to start a vintage watch business, um, I think this this makes sense to simply just do it online and yeah. I think okay. there's very, very limited um, people actually coming to the offices and uh, and getting watches there. How about your own interest in watches then? How did that develop? Oh, yeah, well, um, it started gradually, I guess. So, I mean, I've, I've always been into watches a bit since, since I've been like 18, 19 or so. And I've been um, buying myself watches to wear, to wear every day. And this has been in the beginning, you know, the, the classic um fossil type of, of watches right so this this type of thing and um then i started to get a bit better watches for for milestones when, when i did my bachelor's degree and things like that and um then when when i um finished my my phd uh, i i wanted to take a bit more money into my hands and buy like a proper watch and so i started to do some research on what i can actually afford and so you go down this this rabbit hole and and you see all these different types of watches online most of the time and and you start to look into this direction and another direction and and I think I've been looking for probably four or five months before I actually then picked just watch that at one point even only popped up to me and and I thought well this this is actually kind of kind of fitting and 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 I got that in the end and um yeah um so you went by, okay, this is my budget that I roughly want to spend, right? But did you think about um, whether it's practical? Because now I'm like, I know nothing about being a neuroscientist, right? But surely you work with some equipment and maybe something um, like, I mean, some kind of instruments that maybe you, there are certain types of watches you can't wear. Like you can't wear a hublot. I don't think that's a good idea. Right? <laughs> but it's like, definitely when you were a PhD student, you were probably also thinking, uh, what do you wear to school? Like, did did you think about this kind of stuff? Um, the the cool thing about my job is that I actually don't have real um, exposure to to like to like really critical equipment. Let's say so. I'm I'm really more more of a data scientist. The the most critical um, equipment uh, I have is is an uh, MRI machine, and and you can't wear any type of watches close yeah. to it because yeah. there will always be metallic parts in it. Yeah, and it will break. So um, yeah, I, I could simply just go with aesthetics, right? So I, I, I was wearing what I liked and what 
kind of fit the the outfit the day and yeah i've been i've been yeah going going fine with with this yeah but isn't the outfit yeah. of the day a lab coat <laughs> <laughs> seriously the, the, that's an outfit for that's an outfit for uh for a german <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry it's too easy <laughs> no problem uh, no i mean the, the the lab code really is only when you have exposure with uh with participants okay so you so a typical normal day for me is i i, I went to the office and um I got to the to the computer doing some data analysis. At some point, maybe a participant comes in. Then you just go down to where you, wherever you you want to measure some some data. Mm -hmm. Then you put on the lab coat and and deal with the participant. And then afterwards, you you put it back again. So that's so cool. The 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 lab coat wearing time is quite yeah. quite limited during the day. Yeah. Cool. Uh, before everybody gets upset, you know that is a joke. I don't actually buy into that uh mindset i just know because i think people would you be do. upset like, oh yeah they, yeah they do but there were two things that you said like in your um answer previously right that i picked up on one was it's interesting isn't it how you know as many many collectors start out they always say like i collect and then i started collecting for milestones in my life right like you make it almost make excuses to yourself psychologically mm. to get to 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 justify your purchase because you know watches are not cheap let's be honest they're not cheap so yeah. and then you have to justify it using milestones but there comes a point where you stop justifying it because the one the milestones don't come regular enough <laughs> yeah and you want to get the piece right and then you use other reasons to justify it because it's almost like just liking it is not enough to justify spending that money, right? Mm. Uh, I, I think the the milestone um, or going beyond the buying at every milestone is probably when you become a collector, um, because then you kind of have to go with the flow. So whenever a piece pops up that you want, and you particular in vintage, I mean, you you can't really wait. If if this particular piece is gone, then it typically is gone. You, you don't really have that that many um, examples going around um so yes so you have to buy and sell when whenever the, the time is right and if if that also fits for example at the same time of a milestone it's even better you can you can justify it to yourself um to your wife or whoever you feel financially responsible to <laughs> right um the kind of hint on, on it like in my jokes i guess but uh, i'm from europe but my um appreciation between let's say west germany and east germany comes from western textbooks probably laden with a hint of propaganda um or inaccuracy i should say but what were the differences like living in like east germany when you grew when you were young and what is it like now were there marked differences and are they do they still exist now mm. Yeah, so maybe as, as a little background, so I was I was born in eighty nine, so right before the Berlin Wall came down. So I don't really have like vivid memories about the time when there was actually a, a separated Germany. Mm -hmm. But um, of course, only when the regimes uh, change, it doesn't mean that everything changes immediately. So um, I mean, for me as a kid, everything felt normal, right? Um, but but a few memories I have is, for example, during the nineties. Um, 
every single building in town was was renovated. So everything was 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 polished up. Everything looked better by the end of the nineties um, in in the town, and um, less rocked and and um, streets got better. So there there was apparently a push for for like a lot of better uh, infrastructure in Germany, particularly East Germany, um, to to bring it to bring it up to to pace basically to to the west. Because um, I mean, what I only know is, is secondhand knowledge, but um, the the West, the, the Allied forces have basically been using um, West Germany as as a type of a fortress. So they were were pushing a lot of knowledge, a lot of money, and a lot of resources in into West Germany to actually make it fit if if it ever comes to war with Russia. Um, whereas Russia has been using East Germany more or less as a as a cheap source for for resources and basically pulling everything out. So this is why, why you had this disparity between uh, the West and the East um, of Germany when, when they got reunited and uh, why that had to be yeah equaled out at, at some point. So would you say like the living standards are the same now between the two sides? Mm, approximately, yes. Um, you always have to factor in that, uh, for example, Eastern Germany um, traditionally is, is simply a lot more rural than, than the West. Um, so you have a lot less um, inhabitants per per square kilometer and, some, and things like that. So you have a lot more agriculture. So, but if you factor that in, that then it's more or less the, the same living standards. Yes. Um, okay. Well, at the same point, you also, for example, have, uh, for example, cheaper housing and, and things like that. Right. So, I mean, looking at at other big cities like like Munich uh, in particular, for example. Um, housing is almost unaffordable mm-hmm. uh, and in comparison to here you you pay for the for the same type of, of flat if you if you rent it in Rostock versus Munich probably half if at all mm-hmm. right Man's looking confused because he was born way before 89 so during 89 <laughs> he was already like 30 something so <laughs> life was busy for him <laughs> right I will take that on the chin <laughs> because I can never ever say anything about a lady's age. Yeah. <laughs> it's not worth it from experience. Yeah. But okay, how did you uh, transfer from collecting watches and writing about watches? Was it literally just with Gold Ammer or were you writing before? Um, I haven't really been, been writing before, but I have been like doing a lot of research on my own already. So I've been looking into the vintage watch market and and, and things like that. I've been also um, buying and selling uh, slightly cheaper uh, vintage watches myself and um, always like to to do a bit of, of, a, of a history uh, check on them. So when when they were typically built and then all these, these type of stuff. So there was there was already a general interest in, in these type of uh, vintage watch history, if you want. And then, yes, at some point we were just sitting together and just joking around. And we were thinking about like, so how, what, what type of uh, content can we actually make and what, what possibilities are there? And uh, I thought about it and was like, yeah, well, I mean, I, I have this particular skill set uh, that I can use to actually make some, some sort of content that, that is unusual. And, and that people are not not used to, and what I think is is interesting and what is missing. So we started out to to do that, and 
yeah, I mean, it took me actually over half a year to um, set up the database and get like the, the first um, articles running. So um, yeah, so we've actually been, been working behind the scenes for, for quite a while before this, before this all started. Mm. It's a very um, different, different approach to, let's say, Long Long, because actually, Long Long, you write, you don't write, well, you write quite a bit, mm. um, and you use it mainly as a creative outlet. How does that creative outlet for you, Long Long, differ from, let's say, the podcast? How does writing change from, let's say, speaking in front of a mic for you? Mm. I think the most obvious way for me to explain it is that writing is selfish. It's very selfish. You're putting like uh, words onto paper without thinking about how someone will receive it and how it makes them feel. But when you talk to someone, especially over Zoom, and you can see their face, right? You're also concerned about how you, you're making the other people feel. So you are more selective with the words and how you deliver it. But writing is just like, yeah, I'm just going to put it out there and then hope for the best. And you just don't care at all how it makes someone feel. So it's it's more, um, I get a bigger sense of relief after I'm done writing. With a podcast, I kind of walk away and still think, okay, I could have enjoyed it, but maybe, you know, I wasn't 100% myself or I had to be worried about you and the other people on the pod as well. Yeah. So would you say it's easier then? Because you don't see the actual audience. You don't see the face of the actual audience that you're writing to. Yeah, I think it's easier. Well, I find it easier. And I love, it's like journaling. I love journaling. I love like, like expressing yourself with like basically very little care. And it's, it's definitely mm. a more selfish and more like, I would say like rewarding experience than talking. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Back to Marcus here. Um, when you say you take an analytical approach, right? What do you actually mean when you, okay. I mean, Long Long's just given a great example of how she writes, right? Just straight flowing with little care, but you just said you spent half a year setting up databases. Like what actually goes in to writing an article for you? Mm. How are um, your articles different? You know, that, you know, you're just quoting figures, but actually there's a lot of work. So I'd like you to go through that with us. Yeah. I mean, journey to, to what, what Luno said, I, I totally agree with, with the sentiment that um, with, with writing, it's, it's a bit like putting out a monologue and having it standing there. And then people can basically look at it and, and digest it a bit more. It's, it's a bit different to, to how you, how you do it with a, with a spoken word, for example, with, with any type of type of discussion. It, it just is it it's it's a slower type type of uh, conversation if you want or that's that at least how how i see it and um yeah so to to my my procedure um so yes there there of course i mean in first place this is what what i decided on i want to do everything i do kind of based in in some sort of data so, so the data comes first um but i always have some sort of hypothesis or topic in mind that that i want to talk about and that I feel interesting and gladly so far, I still have have the freedom to simply do whatever I feel um, is, is interesting to me and learn by, by everything I do. So um, I set up the data, I, I do some, um, some analysis on the data 
um, basically looking into, um, for example, opinions that have been uh, out there floating around in, in, in blogs or in, in the forums or in some, some sort of uh, watch news outlets and um, can double check them. I, I often also, for example, come to topics by talking to um, other collectors which are interested in, in a certain uh, area or just uh, tell me their opinions about, about certain things. So, I mean, for example, I, I, I did some pieces about um, Jäger Le Coultre versus Le Coultre. Uh, which is the the American branch of the of the brand during the um, um, yeah basically 30s until the the 70s approximately. Um, so the Kultur dials um, are on watches which are only sold to the U.S. market originally, and um, so this opened to me the the interesting um, idea to actually compare the the U.S. market with the European market because. Um, from from these type of watches, you actually see okay. So how um, how how does the, how did the the brand actually treat the the U.S. market? What type of materials and and what type of strategies? What type of uh, watch types and and lineups went to to the U.S. market versus which stayed actually in uh, within Europe and 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 all this this type of um, of series and and uh, and analysis then goes into me understanding a bit more about the topic and um then ultimately i i write about the the analysis that i see right so um the the data drives what uh, the story will be about in the end but of course there always is a lot of opinion and a lot of um a lot of classic um material in there as well right so if someone has written about a particular reference or so on had has done the the qualitative research about it then you of course want to integrate it as well because it's part of the history of a watch or of a brand or of a certain type of, uh, of pieces okay when you say you're pulling data and you're creating these databases where is the source of your information coming from mm. um yeah so basically everything i can i can get my hands on um so, I mean, the, the most obvious type of, of data is, for example, from uh, from auction catalogs. You can easily get um, the watches and uh, basic information about these pieces um, from from the websites, for example. Um, I've also been using, for example, um, Chrono24 as a, as a very big database um, where I've been scraping off the data um, for tens of thousands of watches and then you know I've I've been manually been, been trying to to classify other um, other type of uh, information as well. So um, because you, for example, don't get information on these websites about what type of of hand is actually on there, what what's the case shape, and and all these type of like minuscule design elements that that you simply don't ask as as one of these um, bigger platforms, right? So this is. Uh, what, what makes this a bit of a, of a semi-automatic um, data acquisition, if you want. Okay, I've got I have a, a few question. questions. Yeah, go um, on. You know how every year the consulting firms or the banks will release like reports on just uh, sales revenue um, about the watch industry and just general findings, right? So recently, a lot of Instagram accounts are just discussing like their thoughts on the secondary market and then they draw graphs and then they say okay secondary market's going down 
have people reached out to you or have you reached out to anyone to have some kind of discussion or even like argument? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm from time to time am commenting on, on these type of posts. If there, for example, are things that are, you know, a bit <laughs> misleading. <laughs> so I mean, because I mean, there, there typically is, is, for example, right now, the narrative is yeah. there's a dip in the market, everything's yeah. going down and so on and so forth. Then sometimes there's a graph that people are saying, okay, but look, for some, for certain models, for example, it's still going up. Yeah. And then you look in, into the fine print and then they actually have like five or six models in there. And uh, for four of them, it's also going down, but one mm -hmm. is going up. So they are mm -hmm. kind of concluding, okay, so everything is going up, which is simply not true, mm -hmm. things like that. But um, apart from that, I'm right now not too interested in in in, in the prices um, of, of of things yeah. so the analytics part for me is really more about um about history and about design okay. and everything that is in the um what's the state of the market right now and how do the prices evolve i i see that and and i comment on it from time to time but mm. it's not my my primary interest okay okay so my my questions are okay when you're talking about well I've, a few of your early articles were like about hands mm. uh k-shapes uh different types of metal when you talk about vintage watches and you're looking at hands and which hands were used how do you know that those hands weren't replaced how do you know that those things were actually original to the piece and say oh yeah okay now because those are original, I can deduce that in 1930s, I don't know, sword hands were popular when they could have been replaced. And, and how, how do you know it was original? Um, yes, yeah, so um, that's, that's a good point and, and you're completely right. And usually I don't know for sure, of course. So if, if there are things which, I, which are simply obvious, then, then I can um, cor correct that in the, in the database. Um, but typically, I, I like to um, work with the law of big numbers, basically saying that if something um, gets changed or is not completely right on a single watch, um, when I amass enough data, um, this will basically average out at, at some point, right? So um, as long as I'm not speaking about this, this one watch I found on Chrono24, and, and I'm referring to this specifically, but rather on... Um, how did the hands look like all over all watches that have been um, put out there, um, probably being from the 1950s or something like that? Um, if you simply take enough uh, enough pieces in there, it it still gives you a, a correct trend if you want. Um, okay. It's like with everything in in statistics and with quantitative methods, you always work under uncertainty. So so you never really know for sure that whatever you see there is is actually um, the absolute truth, because you only know that if you, for example, look at a um, at a catalog and see, okay, so this this piece has actually been looking like this in I don't know 1952, um, then you know for sure that that this has been looking like that, um, but you still don't know from from this catalog like how often was it actually produced and sold and and things like that. So I think this is just two two different types of information you take into account and two different types of of generalizations you you want to draw from uh, from from your from your type of research. So so to kind of paraphrase is what you're saying is when your sample size is large enough it kind of irons out the um, anomalies. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay, so well, as, question... as long as there, there's no, no systematic bias, right? I mean, if, if there, for example, is something that uh, makes things in, in a systematic way wrong, then of course you pick up on, on the systematic wrongness as well. So, system, so for example, as, as you said, if, if every um, Rolex hand, for example, from the, from the 50s and 60s, which typically has been um, Dauphine or Alpha hand, has been replaced later to, to like the, the modern uh, handset, right? Which is the, the classic, uh, more, more stripe-like uh, handset, yeah. exactly. Uh, or, or Mercedes on, uh, on, on GMTs and Explorers, right? Um, then of course you would draw a wrong conclusion if if something like like this would happen, but I simply haven't encountered this yet. And I mean, as I said, I also always try to to validate a bit externally with with the brands and um, and with with certain collectors that what I see there is not complete rubbish at least. Okay, so the strength in that kind of system is in if your sample size is a lot right then it minimizes that risk so when you draw these conclusions what is like your minimal sample size that you're drawing data from mm -hmm. um i mean typically it's it's about um five to six thousand watches um <laughs> okay that's that's the 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 core database um if i do more more fine-grained analysis then then i typically have to work with, with what i get so which is normally in the range of a, of a couple hundred um so for example i i did quantitative history of brightling um if you want and there i had like 700 watches or something like that uh, throughout uh, the years from 1940 to 2000 from the brand look, looking into how how the the brand evolved over time um so there of course you um don't have a, a very good uh, sample size for every year and, and things like that and um i mean there, there there are other statistical tricks basically to um to to deal with that right i mean um one thing for example is that um whatever happens for example in 1970 is not independent of what happened in 1969 and what happens in 1971 right so there there is this um as we call it temporal autocorrelation right so it's it's not independent over time not every year is an is an independent sample so it, it makes sense to to smooth everything out a bit uh, over time for example okay i don't think i could do what you do <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would just be like okay 1970 cut off here and cut off here at the end <laughs> i'd be like what did the teacher say like she yeah. said like the mass teacher said cut off here cut off here and then i'd be thinking right where's my pepperoni for lunch <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I also have to say, I, I have been working in data analysis and, and these type of things since 2012, so, so 10 years by now. So, of course, there, there is a learning curve. And for me, this all comes very naturally. And It yeah, does. So... I can tell it does for you. Like, because of the terms you're pulling out, I'm like, oh, crap, what did that mean in the A-level <laughs> maths? Like, what did he mean? Like, but yeah. I think... I think what everybody would like to know, and I think we can start off with what you mentioned before, which is the culture and uh, Jaeger culture. What are the mm -hmm. findings? Like, can you give us like five to 10 interesting um, things that you found out through your data analysis corroborated by your data um, mm -hmm. that we as collectors, you think would find interesting, maybe even starting off with how 
the culture treated the you know US and European markets differently. Yeah, I mean, some some cool findings from from that analysis were that um, if you want to put it into to blunt words, the the US liked it a bit flashier, mm. um, so there were a lot more like diamond style um, watches. So the the mystery watch, uh, mm. if, if you know, if you know what I mean. So the watch that has like two acrylic uh, rotating discs with uh, uh, yeah. with some something on top of it, right? So that it looks like it's it's a floating. Mm-hmm. Uh, floating type of, of handset um, that has been particularly um, common in the US with with the um, with with diamonds as uh, on on top of the floating discs, for example. Um, the sizes were different. Um, there was a very uh, very market drive for for um, thirty three to thirty four millimeters in the US, where it was like a lot more variants in in Europe, um, things like that. But um, but yeah, in in general, I, um, I I like how everything actually um, works together holistically. So you actually see um, how evolving over time. And for example, the fifties has been a, a dress watch epoch, has been um, a very monotonous epoch, even uh, to to some extent, as there does not have been this this classic um, diversity of watch types, which is just evolving in the fifties. So you see the the first um produce dive watches from from Rolex from Blancpain and and so on and Zodiac for example and and it just simply starts to to take off from there and then, then other brands um take on these uh, these trends and more dive watches more chronographs get produced and and um everything peaks at some point and then you basically see okay so now that everything has has reached this peak and everything has has, has agreed that this is something good. Um, of course, there there will be a downfall because people want something new again, mm. right? Maybe something we we also see in the market right now. Every everybody's complaining that everything looks the same, and so maybe in a in in the next two, three, four, or seven years, um, we're actually seeing like like a lot of a lot of more variants actually in, in the in the new releases. You mentioned something there about like um, tool watches, sports watches, divers watches, chronographs, um, replacing, you know, or taking market share of, you know, dress watches. What would you say from your research was the highest percentage that tool watches took out of like the whole watch market, you know? So originally everything would have been dress watch. So 100% dress watch. And then tool watches came. And what was the, when you say the peak, how much of the market share was sports watches at, at the peak, do you think? Mm, if, if we take every type of sports watch into that, so dive watch, chronograph and, and everything, that I think it has been quite quite stable since since the 70s at, at about like between 60 and 70% of, of the pieces. And um, the rest is then split up. Six, between, 60 between to 70%? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Actually, if, if it you, was like you, predominantly you, sports watches since the 70s yeah if if you count for example every chronograph in there as well right yeah. if, if you fine grain that a bit i mean okay um the the, the classic patek chronograph is not necessarily a, a sports watch right mm. um th- things like that so so you you fine grain that a bit more then of course you have uh, slightly less but the 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 amount of of dress watches um let's say is is stable since since the uh, mid 60s so would you say it's still stable like even in the modern day 
because i just feel that less and less people wear dress watches personally i just think I, it's just that like that's an opinion but is that mm. validated in in fact or evidence that less um, people wear it like i i, I actually I actually don't know so i, I also can't uh, come uh, can't tell you anything about the empirics there but i mean for example from from my own perspective what i also see is that um think about for example um off-round uh, dress watches so things like like uh, Cartier tank and, and so on and, and, and around this ballpark those seem to be getting more popular again right because you see them in, in like urban streetswear and things like that they, they are picking up on on this type of trend right so I mean the classic round dress watch might not be as popular right now at least not as, as much spoken about um but but other type of dress watches definitely are who do you think is determining the trend? Say we're talking about like say case watch, uh, the case. Who do you think determines this? Um, so you mean the, the brand or the like, customer? Um, like who are the trendsetters? So let's say uh, people wearing streetwear are starting to wear Cartier. So maybe people who are very into fashion, but who else do you think? Mm, I mean, we're, we're living through a time, I guess, where, where we're all kind of influenced by um, by the Instagram bubble that, that we're living in, right? And not necessarily only Instagram, but also um, the mass media. Mm. I mean, everything that, that is kind of makes it to, to the media, whatever type of media, social media or, or uh, TV or, um, or whatever you, you're reading, mm -hmm. um, will probably influence us to, to some degree. So... I really think right now for for the young generation, also what what I hear from um, from people I know and from from other, um, for example, dealers, vintage dealers, is that um, because, for example, rappers and musicians and so on are wearing, for example, a lot of Rolex right now in mm -hmm. Patek. Um, even young people, 18, 19 years, uh, giving all their money, they they have they have saved for quite some time to just get their their first day just for example simply because they're they have seen it for years that this is happening mm. so um i i think exposure actually makes you uh makes you go into a certain direction and uh, but this is now for for what's what might be hip on the on the vintage market right mm -hmm. i mean what uh what is actually newly released probably is influenced by that as well mm. um but i guess also then from uh, from the extra from from the brands themselves so what, what they think uh the market will evolve to in the next two five or ten years mm. Mm. i i was uh watching this youtube from parisian gentleman hugo Jacome. He, he talks about like bespoke suits right and he was commenting on the trends right now and i thought it was very interesting because he was saying that um yeah generally there are less people that will want to have a suit now you know, because um, everybody is dressing down more, you know, there's less need for a suit. But um, what that's actually resulted in is that when you do want a suit, you actually really research into it because it's not cheap, right? And so um, all this bespoke made to measure um, kind of ateliers, that, that that's been booming, actually. But all the like off the peg stuff, you know, I remember as a kid, you could pick up a suit for like, like 200 pounds or three, that was about 300 euros, right? Um, from the store. 
And there would be one store after another store, after another store, after another store that did the same thing. You know, that could sell, you just pick up, you can Marks and Spencer's, you go to Moss Brothers. They just, everybody had that in there. And he said that that particular segment now is, um, yeah, increasingly just demolished. And everybody now wants to, if they go to get a suit, they really research a lot. And I just think, I think uh, when I got into watches, um, it was because of the aesthetic and it was about, you know, looking good and part of your outfit and attire. And I just wonder if that also has an impact on, you know, people looking into watches as well, um, where I almost feel if you do wear a suit, the finishing touches are your shoes and, and your and your and your watch. Right. So I don't know if that has an impact, but it's just a, it's just a thought that, yeah, came in my mind. Yeah, I, I mean, um, if, if you think about it. Watches are kind of the only type of jewelry that that is classic classically associated with with men, right? So yes. um, if you if you have some, as you say, finishing touches on on your on your outfit, um, as a man, you don't have that many choices. Mm. Um, particular if you want to have something that that um, flashes out a bit, for example, mm. or that 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 fits in and makes everything a bit rounder mm. um i think that that typically is something that is associated with with watches at least in, in men mm. yeah and also i think <clears throat> you guys mentioned like the social media bubble right or media mass media bubble now when you actually go on instagram and you see the people that primarily get the views dressing in a normal suit doesn't cut it like you're not gonna get the views it it's all about refinement, actually, like really elevated style. So you're seeing this elevated style more. And even if you saw, if you go to shopping, you see a billboard of a model wearing a suit, it's just not going to catch your eye anymore. You know, you just, you know, it's not even really, really good marketing these days to do that. Um, and then another thing I was thinking about is in terms of men's menswear like that, like a suit, it's, it is like steeped in history. In tradition you know how a suit is made and and the style of it why you know you have the lapels like that and and why you wear certain things it does very much buy into something historical because we again you could argue you don't need a suit in a way right mm. and you don't need a watch so again you can go into that vintage there is that vintage style that vintage um avenue you can go down when you go into um bespoke suits but another question i wanted to ask was when you so I'm stuck on this tool watch thing because I'm still interested. Like, um, when you said like we we were lumping seventy percent into sports watches, that includes divers watches, chronographs. What other segments? What other style watches are included in that? Actually, and then also amongst the sports watches, which one's more popular? Is it chronos or is it divers? Mm. Or, is it, or is it neither of them? No, the the the, the chronograph is actually. Uh, very very popular throughout the last 50 or so years um definitely peaking in in the 70s with with the um, classic space age era so every everything had to look like it came from a um, from a cockpit and could have been used to to measure some sort of uh, of uh, distance or velocity or whatever and um dropped a bit but but we're a bit in a in a time of of, uh, of higher chronograph appreciation, if you want. Um, whereas for the dive watches, it seems it has been quite quite stable over over the last forty or so years. 
and um, it simply has been has been a, a classic watch that has been bought. It's typically right now no longer bought for actually diving. I don't, I don't know how many dive watches actually have been bought for scuba diving. Probably not that many. Um, but I also got a few comments, for example, from um, from particularly older people. Um, who just say, I mean, legibility is a factor and dive watches and, for example, pilot's watches are simply easier to read the time from because they have a dark background, because they have large numerals and things like that. So older people also might also tend to to uh, to buy these type of watches because, yeah, it, it simply makes makes a lot of sense to them or because it's convenient. Yeah, I, I also read a recent article of yours, which was compared, like, I think the Asian market and uh, mm. compared to the other wares, right? And, and you mentioned um, you focused on independence, I think, in that article. Well, what did you yeah. find out? Can you tell us what you found? Yeah, yeah so it was looking into the, the most recent um, auction numbers, so from the, uh, from the spring cycle, and um, looking a bit into this, um, if there might be happening a dip or not, or things like that. And um, the interesting point for me was when, when you look into this from the, from the independence uh, perspective, is that, um, first of all, there actually have been a lot more, relatively more um, independence been sold on the, on the Asian market than on the, um, in the Geneva auctions. So let's call it the European market. And um, at the same time, these uh, these pieces uh, that have been sold in Geneva um, also sold for um, for more. In also in comparison to their um, to their respective estimate, if if you want to not compare the the gross numbers, um, which kind of makes sense in in to some degree because um, first of all, you you can say okay, well, it's it's kind of of, of supply versus demand. So if you have more watches in, in the auction, then maybe everyone gets one uh, and you don't have this this head-to-head -head battles um, happening in, in, in Hong Kong. Um, but at the same time, the most of the Hong Kong auctions have actually been later than the Geneva auctions, right? Except uh, I think Sotheby's had, had it actually be before Geneva. Um, so you you have you have also this this trend that um, it's it's happening later when when this market dip has has been more pronounced already so maybe that's also the reason why why people um yeah didn't didn't buy into into independence as this is a is a new market and uh probably the the least established market at, at the moment well you mentioned something inter interesting which is the um estimates right did mm. you ever look at on average how much watches exceeds estimate on sale like how accurate mm is the estimate um i mean the 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 good thing about the estimate or, or the, why, why i actually use it in the first place is because it has some legal binding because the the reserve has to be uh, equal or below the the low estimate right um okay. but i mean things that you find is for example phillips is using teaser estimates a lot more than than, than other uh, than, than other auction houses so you typically find that at the phillips auction um, the prices go like 2x the, the low estimate, whereas in the other auction houses, you find it's just uh, 1.5, so 50% above the new estimate. Mm -hmm. And this is approximately the, the ballpark that, that we're talking about here. And um, 
This doesn't mean that necessarily at Philips, the all, the all watches are also going for higher prices. It simply is that it seems that Philips is actually um, yeah, putting putting out slightly lower estimates. And I mean, they're, they're also saying it, right? So they, they say they, they want to have the market decide on the prices rather than the auction house, um, which is a yeah legit strategy if you want. But yeah, I, I guess this is way, way sometimes... Uh, People get a bit upset if, if they actually see an estimate in, in the Philips catalog and, and they go like, well, this would be a great price if, if the watch actually goes for, for this low estimate. But Yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Like, fuck's sake, I would have bought fucked on if they were like low estimate. I reckon like when there was an auction, I think long, long before would put a bid in, right? I just think, okay, I'll keep that Not, bid there. Yeah. If, it's, if yeah. I get it, I get it. If I don't, then whatever. Yeah, and I don't think you do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like this is um just this estimate times two basically. Yeah. Oh. Right. Um, that was all very interesting. Um, how has all this research changed your own watch journey? Mm. Um. Yeah. It it definitely influences um what I find interesting about a certain watch. Right. It's it's no longer um simply the aesthetics but i always have have in the back of my my mind so this this type of style is very classic for this in that era or uh, it uses this type of movement and has been the first or whatever of of the brand or has this particular feature so it it just has added um to me a lot of dimensions what 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 might be interesting in in a watch to me and uh yeah does that mean you're more selective or you're less selective because you can see more things that you know you're attracted to or are you wanting all of that in one package and being more selective um so and so i guess i mean maybe a watch that before looked rather dull um now actually <laughs> that has historical background right is it, it, a bit more interesting right so I, right. I, okay. I guess it goes both ways. I wish that applied to humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, anyway, I want to move on to what you do as your day job, which you're a neuroscientist. And I think pretty much, you know, how the brain works, behavior and psychology, these topics I've always found so interesting. So I don't want to waste the opportunity to ask you some questions since you're here. Mm. um social media right um there's been a lot of news about the impact of mental health and you know the dangers it poses to children what are those dangers is it true what's the evidence behind that mm. um yeah a lot to unpack let's say um yeah so first of all i mean social media as as any type of uh, of exposure for for young for young kids and, and adolescents. Um I mean if if unfiltered that can generate some sort of uh, of weird um pictures of yourself and how you should behave or dress or look like or whatever. Um I think that there definitely is a factor and there there's there's some evidence about it. But I mean it's just the, the the newest flavor, let's say, of, of this type of, of research, right? I mean, um, in the late 70s, 80s, when also 
um, every household started to have a TV and more TV channels became available and and the program uh, got got a lot more diverse. People were also arguing, so this is kind of making a, a bad influence on the kids because also back then actors simply looked a lot better than the average and, and these, these type of things, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is definitely influencing the use, but as any other medium that has been hip at the time throughout the last probably 100, 200 years. Yeah. So and, why uh, is it? Why is it an issue for, sorry to interrupt your question, because I actually asked a very, yeah, you said there's a lot to unpack there, but why is it so critical for children or adolescents? And, and why does that not happen for adults? Mm. What is it about the human brain that changes? It's, it's, it's also happening for adults, but to, to a lesser extent. So um, right. the, the brain still develops until you're like in your early 20s, approximately. And so until then, there, there's still a lot of um, structural changes in your brain. So everything that, that you um, actually see happening during that time. So if you have also, for example, a traumatic um, event happening in, in your life, that is impacting you a lot more when you're younger than when, when it's happening when you're older. You're also changing in character a lot more during that time. Um, so until you're like 20 or so, you're, you're still going through phases where you have like maybe some, some introverted phase and then some extroverted phase and things like that. They are, they're still, um, still happening, but uh, approximately from, from like 30 on, your 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 base character if you want is is kind of is kind of fixed and only changes very gradually and and it would need for example a very a very drastic uh, or traumatic uh, event to actually change you as a person a lot uh, later in your life okay so, so something like i see a lot in china is kids holding an ipad and, and you know and the phone and it keeps them quiet and and, you know, as soon as you take away the phone, they start, like, getting really upset. And it kind of happens with the TV, obviously, as well. If you switch the TV off, people get upset, <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. before they finish the program. But, like, how what is it doing for our attention spans, you know? Yeah. Um, so for, for the attention span itself, I mean, the the evidence is rather clear. It's, it's, it's not really changing. I mean, even if you look, for example, at, at different platforms like um, from from Facebook to Instagram to TikTok, if you think that um, the the content on these um, on these three platforms is getting gradually short short lived, mm -hmm. um, that that I mean, the average TikTok video is, is seven seconds, right? This this is rather short, um, but it only is accepted, for example, in use because it just fits their 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 style of uh, of looking at things and um and and how how they they can um how they're actually indirectly rewarded by this i mean if you see a nice video or a nice reel or whatever it it, it makes you feel good it makes you laugh for example and uh, then that's nice and then you scroll to the next um but this is not doing anything to your general capacity of how to attend to something or how long to attend to something okay right in the last episode uh long long and i discussed the psychological psychological aspects of an individual that collects watches um we touched on two points hoarding and the need for external validation is that is that true like does that exist in in people that collect watches is there any kind of 
yeah nature thing that is in in collectors in the brain mm. um i mean as as with with any type of of thing is um i mean you 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 felt it yourself if you get a new watch and if you've waited for that watch for some time maybe even or even if it just has been delivered to you and you wait this two three uh, seven days and, until it gets delivered um you actually feel rewarded the moment you get it right so so it gets you a push and and a, and, a, and a nice feeling um just by getting something and uh, I, i mean this this is not only watch collecting or watches in general i mean it, it's it's typically with with everything even if you if you get food after you have been hungry for half an hour or something you you actually you you like that right so um and humans are just wired to seek out for things they like in the end so you start to well some individuals start to hoard them because they simply like the feeling a new watch gives them um even without thinking what to actually do with them if if you actually want to wear them or not or if, if wearing actually makes you happy or if you have enough space to store them or also to to show them in, in your apartment or whatever so yeah this this is a is is to some extent normal human uh, but also of course gets to to some caricatures in, in some individuals so okay healthy <laughs> healthy <laughs> I, 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 i don't know at, at which point it, it becomes unhealthy i mean classically there there are definitions of, of unhealthy behavior if, if, if it affects your your social life or your your credit score and things like that right <laughs> as long as you're, you're okay with that then, then it's, that's it's, interesting that we let society to determine like if you're out of the normal distribution you are unhealthy you know <laughs> We don't yeah. think of it as like a positive thing that it could be actually healthy, mm. right? If you don't yeah, fit yeah. in the norm, you are unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this 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 is a bit in, into our into our um, preference of thinking in binary categories. Yeah. I mean, everything is 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 a is a gradual spectrum. Re literally everything, right? Yeah. Um, in in human behavior, so um, we just feel more comfortable if, if we have this clear classification i'm healthy or the other one is, is unhealthy yeah, so, yeah, yeah 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 right well that ends the main interview with you marcus um we now go on to the reverse round and i understand you've prepared two questions for us mm -hmm. yeah so who wants to go first ladies first i'll go first, Then... <laughs> I'll go first in, case, in case the second one is harder <laughs> oh, okay um Well, let's say um yeah so then long long if if you could be a, a a brand ambassador what what brand would it be and also what era would it be oh i've actually played this game tons of times like i keep playing this fantasy like okay i i'm gonna get sponsored while i play tennis and then like what would i wear and everything <laughs> and then then i had all these like rules so like for example let's say say it was richard mill so richard mill will be up there right that means i could never be seen with a paddock outside of the anywhere basically and then like would I be okay with that and then I thought all these consequences like people would sue me if I broke the contract okay so if I were to be a brand ambassador but then I couldn't sell any of these watches right <laughs> well definitely paddock it's like without a doubt 
but then again it's like you would have to be forced to wear the one they want you to wear so it's mm-hmm. actually safer to go with Richard Mill just because I like the modern pieces and there's no like vintage for Richard Mill but most of the pieces I like and with Paddock the risk is I would probably be put in the category for the modern female watches then 24 yeah and then it's not like I can be like give me this grand calm from like whatever year right so yeah that would be the safest choice for me yeah Mm. that's a very well thought out answer yeah, because uh, I think I dream about this. Like, yeah, you clearly have thought about it. That's what I mean. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, it's a very well, random question to think about. <laughs> but but actually, since since you mentioned it, I I've always been wondering. Um, I mean, wearing a watch doesn't help you play tennis, right? But still, everybody gets paid to actually wear one during during a tennis match. I used to. I think um, for a while, like we obviously know like Rolex sponsors a lot, Richard Mill sponsors a lot. And I never really thought about the effect until recently because, well, one, I started playing a lot of tennis, but two, I also realized that you're selling like um, a dream, right? Of this kind of, the person wearing the watch is a certain kind of character. And that that person, it's not the success, actually. It's more like, for example, you would assume that they are very disciplined because they put in X amount of hours to practice. Therefore, if I wear this watch, I could possibly come off as a disciplined person. (laughs) So it's it's more a dream rather than a look. But 100%, there's no way it helps at all. It's like those runners and the sprinters as well. How can Mm. it help you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Like when you look at a tennis player, physique wise, yeah. um, I think them and swimmers and they, they look great. Yeah. So yeah. the aesthetic yeah. look is there. Then I think I think it'd be fair to say tennis is one of those sports which is a bit like golf. Yeah. It's got that class to it, hasn't it? Where it's got that tradition and and that gentlemanly side to it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like say like Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Um and that's that whole aesthetic image and that dream that you're trying to sell mm-hmm. that I think oh you know I would want to like be like that look like that be humble like that it it just fits in almost to what a dream man should be yeah 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 when yeah, you say it like that it is true yeah, yeah there's one thing and and also what what you shouldn't uh or what, what you need to take into account is um how much money spent on average on on a certain type of sport so I, for example, oh, yeah, as yeah. you mentioned it, I, I have been a professional swimmer yeah. and there's simply no money in swimming. Um, you don't get really prize money. No one's really uh, want, want to sponsor you simply because um, all the things you need uh, to go to the pool and swim maybe mm-hmm. cost you about 50 bucks in total if you spend already quite quite a lot. So this there, there, there simply is, is no reason that, that someone sponsors you to to get something that uh, doesn't really pay you much as a company, whereas in, in as you said, golf or tennis, there there simply is is like a lot more of a of a of an industry behind it that actually makes quite a quite a lot of money out of it. Hmm. Do you think also like the access as well? Like anybody can swim. Anybody just yeah. needs some water and they can go and swim, right? But yeah. um, <laughs> depends so the market. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of weird strokes out there. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like for for more like 
like for play golf you need to have a membership to play golf don't you mm -hmm. like you can't just rock up um yeah. so the access to it and therefore the market of the the market of potential golfers out there is probably a lot smaller than swimmers right because you don't have to be a professional swimmer to, to need a swimming trunks right <laughs> or, or swimming shorts everybody needs them you know yeah. so yeah okay well what's your question to me um for you um let's see oh yeah um so what what would be your 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 doomsday watch so you the, the world is ending tomorrow you know you can only have one watch for the rest of your life roaming the the wastelands uh what what would it actually be so that'd be a watch that's already in my collection or a watch that I could it can, just... Can, can be anything. So I'm roaming the wastelands, right? Uh, is yeah. this like a, you know, post-apocalyptic time where there's radioactivity or anything like that? Like, <laughs> I know it sounds yeah. geeky, but it's a very valid question. You know, like, it, it radioactivity, is. I've got to think of like Rolex, haven't I? Like, yeah. Let's 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 say it's some some sort of uh, of zombie apocalypse, so no radioactivity around. Wow, so I think of potential people attacking me. Well, I definitely wouldn't wear a dress watch. Right, I want something more robust. I need something, you know, um, because a lot of these zombie movies, the zombies seem to be more active at night. Yeah, so I definitely need something with loom. Yeah, yeah strong yeah. loom. Mm -hmm. um, I can actually see um, a chronograph also being quite useful. Um, so... It would have to be, um, it would have to be, it'd have to be like something like a Daytona or something. Ceramic, <laughs> ceramic bezel. At all. Yeah, yeah, ceramic bezel, you know, fantastic. You know, it doesn't scratch, easily legible. Um, you just can't afford to go with anything delicate, can you? Because you're breaking windows yeah. and looking for food and stuff. So yeah. you have to be... <laughs> It would have to be. Uh, I have to say that that question is very original. I've never had yeah, that one that's before. That's the best question ever. But what about having those alarm ones to distract? Oh, actually, uh, oh no, Explorer One doesn't have a time thing, does it? Doesn't have the chronograph. Sorry, what was the, what did you say, love? Like the alarm clock. Like I mean, yeah, but then the, the zombies clock. would oh, hear you, wouldn't they? No, to distract <laughs> them. Like you, you start the minute repeater, then you throw the watch. Yeah, but what? What? Yeah. Okay. Anyways. What? If they like I don't, I don't think i could ever bring myself to throw a minute repeater like anywhere <laughs> yeah Just like, down in style. i would think do you know what i go into that half motion of trying to throw it and then go do you know what zombies just eat me i'm not gonna do it <laughs> just turn me into a zombie i'd rather be a zombie with a minute repeater <laughs> right well that was a lot of fun um we now go on to the pump push around. All right. So uh, Germany is famous for their sausages and their beer. What is the best sausage, in your opinion, that Germany produces? Um, yeah, interesting question. Uh, right now, I don't know if uh, probably we, we still consume more sausage than, than the rest of the world, but might not be as, as hit at it as it used to be. Um, for me, there's this this uh, small type of, of sausage, um, which are called uh, Banner sausage. So like the the, the capital of, of Switzerland, and um, it's perfect for barbecue. They they are uh, wrapped in bacon and filled with cheese. That's <laughs> oh my god, that sounded that's, good. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly it tastes exactly how it sounds. It's it's amazing. And if, if you if you have it at a barbecue, it's it's the best. Mm. Yeah. Can, can I ask how you how do you have it? Do you just have it like just a sausage or do you have it with a bap or like what's the best way to have it? You, you simply has it has it as it is right from from the from the grill and uh, just just eat it right away <laughs> wow right um number two name a quote that is important to you in german so a german quote mm. and then translate it to us yeah um i guess it's it's a quote that one of my earliest professors uh gave me it's um umwege erhöhen die ortskenntnis so it means uh, detours um expand your knowledge of the area mm. um basically meaning that don't don't worry if you actually made a mistake in looking into something something weird or something unrelated in the end it will actually get you somewhere and you actually learn more from it than simply going from from a to b maybe uh that reminds me of uh, that book range actually yeah. you know when, when he said that that's the first thing i thought about uh, where instead of just going straight and, you know, you explore before you decide. Yeah. Right. Number three, something that East Germany has that West Germany doesn't have and vice versa. Um, that's hard because Germany is, is no longer just East and West. Yeah. It, it has originally been, been, been different regions. Um, let's say, um, East Germany has. Um, I probably have to go with with some some sort of of, of food. Um, so we have, for example, the um, uh, Spreewaldgurken. So that's uh, that's pickles that that come from a um, from a river close to to Berlin, going to the um, to the Polish border, and they are they are quite famous. And uh, otherwise, you have. As you said, a lot of beer in Germany, and um, unfortunately, the best beer is made in Bavaria, which is West Germany. Ah, has that got to do with the water, or, or what has that got to do with? Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of of different traditions how to make beer. Actually, even though it's it's always the same four ingredients, there there are a lot of different ways to actually combine them and and how how to deal with them. And um, I mean, Germans have perfected that over hundreds of years. And so it's it simply is the traditional way of of the of the Bavarian beer that uh, I I like the best. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Where do you see yourself going with this watch blogging? Where would you like to be? Mm. Yeah. So in in terms of uh, of of dream job, that definitely would be a heritage director at at some point at some some brand, mm. basically looking as a job into the history of uh, of, a, of a brand and of, of certain eras and not only doing this by um, buying off pieces from from auction but also doing a lot of cataloging running the numbers on what has actually been been sold and what hasn't and yeah how, how people reacted to to certain types of watches in in different years in the different eras would you if that dream job came up right mm. um well first of all if it comes up because of this podcast uh, i'd like to have some permission for that <laughs> um, but if it does come up, yeah, would you stop being a neuroscientist to do it? Um, if it would have to be a full-time job, then yes, I'd have to. <laughs> oh, so you're that passionate about it. I mean, you would give up. Um, being a neuro 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, at, at the moment, I'm, I still like that, that I have a lot to do, let's say. Um, so I, I simply like, like working and, and like doing data analysis this is why I do this beyond my, my day job mm -hmm. as well. Right. So, um, right now I think typical eight to five job is, is, is fine. Um, and then you can still have a, have a hobby beside it. And, um, I guess my, my passion is more about numbers and analysis than, than it is about the brain per se, mm. even though there's quite a lot of cool things and quite a lot of cool phenomena to, to look into. Mm, okay. One person that you would love to meet in the watch industry. And then one person you would love to meet just full stop. Just full stop. Um, so one in the watch industry and one not limited to the watch industry. Okay. Um, then one, one first, not, not limited to, to the watch industry definitely, um, is have a, have a, a quick round with, uh, with Michael Phelps. Um, oh, it definitely oh. would be something cool. Mm. Uh, also asking him why, why Omega, but, um, <laughs> that's, that's a different point. And, um, from the watch world, does that person have to be alive? No. No. Uh, then, then probably I go with uh, Gilbert Albert, the um, Patek Philippe case designer ah, in the fifties. Okay. Uh, right. What would you want to ask him, or what would you? Um, simply about about his his method, his uh, his style and inspiration. I mean, this is just something that for me has been quite out of the ordinary and and ahead of its time definitely and in the in the 50s and 60s um to what type of, of shape has been has been done and um what also has been the norm right so i mean this there's this this uh, this dialogue not only about the actual design but also um why doing it differently and and uh, and how to to um yeah basically come up with uh with what you come up independent of what you actually exactly are working on mm -hmm. okay and one thing off your bucket list mm, well in the in the near future i i definitely hope to go to um um to uh to the uh, geneva auctions and um and the monaco legend group auctions are you going to that soon uh hopefully yes ah okay and next one, I think German is one of the most difficult languages to listen to. Like, I, like I'm just being very honest. Like, I don't think it sounds very nice. Do you agree with that? And which language is the nicest to listen to and most difficult to listen to, in your opinion? Um, I mean, German is the the language of the poets, right? I mean, is it? Uh, Goethe and Schiller and so on. They they have been. German and they have been using the, the German languages and um, I don't know I mean of course for me it, it doesn't sound weird and I agree that, that it is a, a hard language to learn and that it has ah, yeah, a, it is. a lot of um, uh, sub clauses and, and uh, more more exceptions than rules probably um, but no that doesn't sound weird uh, <laughs> but yes <laughs> Um, what, what does sound weird, um, actually, um, 
there there is um, the the Greek language. I I find kind of kind of weird. Um, so I um, I had a, an an, uh, an ex girlfriend of mine was Greek, and whenever she was on the phone uh, calling someone in Greek, it always sounded so weird, and it always sounded like um, they were arguing and and, and fighting about something. <laughs> And then I asked, so what, what were you talking about? And she was like, yeah, I just told my mother how my weekend was, something like that. So <laughs> just the normal thing seemed to sound, at least to me, quite quite aggressive. You haven't heard Chinese. Have you, have you ever been to a Chinese <laughs> restaurant? Like people look like they're about to fight. <laughs> yeah, like and actually they're just talking about what happened. Honestly, as a kid, I was like, why, why dad, are you getting so passionate about this? <laughs> like, <laughs> And then when it comes to pay the bill, it's like a fight. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why do we have to go through this every single time? <laughs> like, <why? laughs> Can't you guys decide beforehand? You know. Right. Next one. Um, last two now. One interesting fact about our brains. Mm. Um, I'd say probably the the field that I'm working in. So I'm working in in attention. And uh, an interesting fact that most people don't know and don't realize is that when we're focusing on something, we're not laser focused all the time. It's it's rhythmic. So we're we're very focused and then less focused, very focused, less focused with within a second. So this happens six to ten cycles within a second. And um, this makes sense because if you think about it, um, even though we have to be attending something and be focused on, on some things because for example we're, we're driving a car so we have to be focused there we also have to be able to flexibly adapt to the environment mm. so for example if a kid runs onto the street you still have to be able to see that even though you are you are attending your task of, of driving the car right mm. yeah that, that i've got a question going along for that then why why is it and it's made, i'm just going to use me as an example so i don't offend mm. anybody right I'm driving in the car and somebody will talk to me and most of the time, yeah, it's not an issue. I can talk and I can focus on that and it's not no problem at all. Yeah. But when I watch TV, <laughs> it's almost like I didn't hear what they said. Yeah. I don't <laughs> register what they said. Yeah. Why, why is that different? Um, I guess because um, watching TV also involves listening to what is happening. Right. So there, there, there's this interplay of, uh, of, think about that what what you see uh, visually and you also hear it so there, there's this this auditory channel that, that is basically um challenged when someone also talks to you during during tv whereas mm. in in traffic so while, while driving a car you don't really have to rely that much on, on what you hear ah okay that that just made me sound like i asked a stupid question now <laughs> <laughs> right and the last one how powerful is the mind give one example mm. yeah one uh, so very interesting is always to to use to use perception um because it's something everybody can can kind of relate to and um i think you always have to have to keep in mind that reality starts in the brain so uh, for example if you look at something um the the retina so um, the the membrane in your eye that actually picks up the, the light um, is having um, receptors for uh, color vision and and also receptors for only light uh, and dark, mm. right? 
And um, if you look at the distribution, um, only the central part of your retina is actually having uh, color receptors and also only the, the very smallest part. So if you, for example, um, extend your arm and looking approximately at the size of your palm, that is how many color receptors are there only in that area. Everything around it is actually not seeing any colors, but you perceive colors around that as well. This is where the brain puts everything in. Mm -hmm. oh, so it's filling it all in? It's it's filling all all that color information in, yes. Okay. That's cool. Wow. Yeah. Can can I um do neuroscientists differentiate between the brain and the mind, or is it the same thing? Um probably neuroscientists not philosophers, maybe a bit more. I mean the it's it's a it's a quite quite heavy debate. Um for me. Uh, everything that makes me is kind of my brain because this this is kind of the, the relay station in between everything. So between um, perception and action, if you want. And, and also, on the other hand, the brain wouldn't be of much use if you don't have any, any input, any output. Right? So there, there always is this um, interesting uh, comparison of a uh, sea animal that, that is uh, floating around when it's young and, and eating until it grows to a certain, um, until, uh, until a certain size. And then it sits down and becomes a sort of coral, basically. And the first thing it does when it sits down is it digests its own brain so that, it, that it's no longer, because it's no longer using it to, to float around. It just yeah eats up its, its own brain because it, it's better to, to have the nutrition and uh, just sit there as a as a coral. Oh. Wow. That's really interesting. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Um that rounds off our usual format for the podcast. That's it for the time being. How did you find that, Marcus? Did you enjoy yourself? It was a really nice, nice experience, yes. I mean, because we also touched on a lot of topics. Uh yeah, I, I hope everybody also enjoys the off watch talk that, that we have yeah. here. Um, if you guys want to uh, read more of Marcus's articles, then you can go to goldammer, um, dot Is it M-E or is it com? M-E, yeah. Yeah, dot M-E. Um, and you can find Marcus at um, Seams Watches. That's S-I-E-M-S, Watches. Um, and you can reach out to him. And you can find us on our usual channels. So we'll see you on the next one. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the waiting list podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.